0: Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode, The Benefits of Active Management, is for institutional and professional investors. I'm John Sherman, co-head of the U.S. Equity Client Portfolio Management Team at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. With me today is Lee Spellman, head of U.S. Equities for J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and Rob Bowman a Managing Director and Research Analyst at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights.
1: Thanks for having us.
2: Glad to be here.
0: Regulation, fees, the course of least regret, career risk are all reason that investors give for going passive. But the reality is that active management as an industry hasn't given investors a compelling reason to invest in active strategies. Flows, at the very least, suggest that investors are questioning the value proposition of active management. Lee, how would you respond to this?
1: The active passive debate is not new, but there's no question it has certainly intensified in recent years. 2016 saw a record low in terms of the percentages of active managers outperforming their benchmarks. But this is reversed quite significantly in 2017 with more than half of managers beating their benchmarks. I would actually step back for a second and say it's not active versus passive. It's how to use both. And if you have a long-term investment horizon, which I hope most investors do, Active management pays off because it's the power of compounding over that long term that is really how you're going to win. And I think we forget that we've become very, very short-term oriented, and it's all about having an outcome that you want to achieve over the long run. I think if you have a very short-term horizon, you probably should be in a passive instrument. But remember, just by definition, passive is going to underperform. We are completely committed To active management, and we do that by investing very heavily in bottoms-up fundamental research. We believe that stocks are worth their future cash flows, and if you can do a better job of forecasting those future cash flows, you will pick the right stocks for your clients. Our analysts are career analysts, so we're very fortunate to have Rob Bowman with us today who's had almost 25 years covering the computer industry hardware companies, networking companies, semiconductor companies, and I think it'd be great for Rob just to say, why have you done it for such a long time, and why don't you describe a little bit about what you do and what your edge is in terms of providing good returns to our clients?
2: Well, that's a good question, Lee. I enjoy what I do. I'm part consultant. I'm part risk assessor. Like a consultant, I look at my industries and try to figure out how they're going to grow. I look at things like Porter's Five Forces. I try to figure out what the competitive advantages are of certain companies of one versus the other. And then I overlay evaluation and a risk assessment to try and figure out on a relative basis what risks are priced in and where do I find value in company A versus company B.
1: So why don't you walk us through exactly what your job entails? When you think you're trying to beat the benchmark in a very volatile sector, technology changes so rapidly, and you've identified trends like driverless cars. So how do you go about actually figuring out, when you're talking about trying to predict the future, how do you do that?
2: The most important thing, I think, is really to understand your industry like a consultant and be out in the field and be going to trade shows and talking to your companies and really being firsthand front row in understanding where your industry is going. And so I'd say with the last 20, 25 years of covering the industry, we've had waves of PCs, we've had handsets, and as now I look into this next wave, I think we have a very exciting period coming for the next five to 10 years in things like automated driving, electric vehicles, industrial IoT. And in order to understand those better, I literally travel around the world a couple times a year, and I meet with people from end users and shops to the people who are making the chips to making the hardware to making the cars to understand what's happening and why content is going to increase. So just to give you a a number, today's car has about $370 worth of content. If you look at a Tesla, it has closer to $3,000 worth of content. I think the car of the future is going to look more like Tesla. So we try to travel around the world and understand what parts are going into that Tesla and other high-end vehicles. And we try to find the companies that supply into those and semiconductors that have real competitive advantages, that have very high margins, good cash flow, and valuation that I think is misunderstood by the market.
0: How do you make money for investors?
2: Well, I think one of the most important things is to understand how you're going to win. And in any game, you first look at the competition sometimes to understand what strategy you're going to have. So in my case, I'm trying to beat a lot of times the S&P 500 in which I cover 8% of that. And so I look at some of the bigger names and I try to decide whether I want to be overweight or underweight. And I do that in part by assessing what can I own that can A, grow faster, have a better competitive advantage where I'm more comfortable that the standard deviation of outcomes is maybe more narrow versus the company I'm underweight and where the valuation is compelling. This whole process is sort of a rinse and repeat type thing. It's going to California multiple, multiple times per year, going to Asia twice per year, and it's talking to the people that compete with these companies, that supply these companies, that are customers of these companies, and doing it over and over again to make sure that our thesis of owning, for example, companies exposed to the auto sector in semiconductors where we believe strongly that content is going to increase are probably going to outperform the companies that are exposed to the client sector, where we think growth is going to be more limited, and that's in smartphones and in tablets and PCs.
1: And I think one thing that I've observed, Rob, over the years is that just like my comments about active management, that you have to be in it for the long run, I think you have a very long-term focus too, and you're not caught up in the day-to-day noise. And I think that's what's really changed over the last couple of years, just like Everything in the world has changed. We expect Amazon to deliver a package in two hours. Mm. And now, people, investors, want returns measured on a daily basis. But that is not how you win over the long term.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the big differentiators for us is that across the board, we're all compensated on three, five, and 10 year rolling performance, which I think is really the right way to do it. And then you have a focus on structural frameworks, who's going to win versus who's going to lose. And when I go to conferences and I see my competitors and they're all trying to, if it's a hedge fund, they got to perform this month, today, this week. And even most of my major long competitors are thinking about how they're going to win this year. I think thinking about things on a three- to five- and ten-year basis is actually a real advantage. Because the more shorter term you go, there's more uncertainty related to macro factors and other things and not the company's execution, But over time, if the company is positioned well and executes well and you have the framework right, I think you're going to win over a three to five and 10 year basis, which is what we've done for the most part in most of our funds.
0: Is it possible to have an information advantage today?
2: It's a good question. I think for the short term, it's becoming more and more difficult as you've got lots of big data and other things that I think are competing away the advantage of who's going to win in this quarter or who's going to win over six months. But I actually think there's almost more of an opportunity to outperform over the long term because so many people are focused on the short term. And in part, I mean, if I look back to when I started at JP Morgan, I didn't even get emails. We didn't have emails, we didn't have the web. Now there's just a flood of information that comes at you, and 90% of it is about the short term. So if you can filter out all the nonsense that comes in and really focus on structural advantages of companies and relative advantage, Not be staring at your quote screen every day, but going out and visiting companies. And one of the great things about being at J.P. Morgan is that we have great access. I mean, I consider what's been really nice for me is over 25 years is I've seen CEOs and CFOs retire, but yet I still keep in touch with them. You know, and that's the kind of industry framework we can build by having these relationships and thinking long term which I think really does give us a competitive advantage and allows us to win over the long term.
1: I think the information advantage has actually evolved into a judgment advantage, which is why someone like Rob covering the same industry for almost a quarter of a century, when you put it like that, it really sounds powerful. But you've seen industries, companies evolve. You've seen companies go out of business. So you understand the whole framework of the industry that I think when somebody's only covered it through one cycle or just for a couple of years, really misses out on.
2: Well, yeah, that is another advantage. That When I go to an analyst meeting for a company, I feel very old. There's just not that many people who have covered the sector for that long. And that's a huge advantage. It's also a very big advantage in talking to companies. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Texas Instruments is one of the largest companies in my coverage. Their CFO is younger than me. And when he was just appointed, he actually asked me to come down and speak to him and his management team. I mean, that's just something differentiated that I don't think you get the opportunity to do unless you've covered the sector for a long time, you have the respect of the management teams and you work at JP Morgan. And the other thing, kind of coming back to the active-passive debate, which I think is very interesting, is the passive funds are investing in the largest companies by definition. They're going to be, in essence, I view it as overweight versus some of the smaller companies. And in tech, what tends to happen over time is some of the biggest names get disrupted the most. And so, When I think about it, that's a real opportunity for active management and for us to outperform over the long term.
1: Absolutely, because in a cap-weighted index, you're buying yesterday's winners, not necessarily tomorrow's winners. To Avago, which is a company that you identified long before it was even in the index, and look at the powerhouse it's become today, now called Broadcom.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's actually a good example of how our process works. You know, Avago was a name that was in a theme that we like, which was, as the wireless market moved from 3G to 4G, we were trying to figure out how do we play this. And we had owned Qualcomm for the 3G transition. But the thing about the 4G transition is that it brought spectrum that came in at very high frequencies that could only be filtered by the filters from Avago, a very differentiated position where they essentially had a monopoly over a part that was going to explode in terms of content in new phones. For example, Apple phones had about a dollar of RF content in 2G. Then in 4G, it went up to about $15, so an explosion of content. And we thought Avago was a great way to play it because they had a very differentiated part with good margin and a good management team that we thought with a Singapore-based tax rate of 5%, they might be able to do more with. So there's another case of where we looked at what's the theme, 4G, who's best positioned, and how we can be positioned on a relative basis where we own Avago versus Qualcomm in this case, And then it actually rolled into a story that we didn't predict in terms of the M&A, but that's really been the kicker for the last couple of years. And we believe that they're still very, very strongly positioned and have a a meaningful differentiated advantage in their core markets and continue to do M&A. And still, what's amazing is this is a stock that's gone from 32 to 250, and the valuation is the same because the earnings have grown just as much as the stock.
0: Disruption and innovation is certainly something that people have long associated with technology. But it seems like tech is enabling disruption in other sectors. Are you finding that?
1: Every single sector is being disrupted. So we all know what's the story of retail. In fact, Amazonable has become an actual word. But even beyond retail, I think about the energy sector, where U.S. shale production is leading to a situation where someday the U.S. could very easily be energy independent. And that is a technology revolution. It's all about technology. It's the technology of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling that has allowed the U.S. to be a leader. So we're seeing technology and the implementation of that technology disrupt virtually every single industry. The big trend right now is artificial intelligence, big data, et cetera. And you look at companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, and the amount of data that they collect every single day that just helps to refine those processes and impacts a lot of other industries. And that's what our analysts, we ask them to first and foremost focus on industry structure and framework, who are the winners and who are the losers, and then go from there when we build our portfolios.
2: Why is that important? We need to work as a team. So Chris Erickson covers Amazon and sits right next to me. And we've been working very, very closely and trying to understand what Amazon Web Services is all about and how that's disrupting both my legacy hardware companies, but then also enabling new business models. I mean, companies like Uber, Netflix, these are companies that don't have their own data centers. They've relied on AWS and things that we just didn't think were possible 10 years ago have been enabled by this cloud-based system. And it's been something that without leveraging the analyst who goes and meets with Jeff Bezos and understands the strategy, I just don't think my insights would be and my conviction would have been as strong to underweight some of the legacy hardware players. And so I think it's benefited us both on the long side and the underweight side.
1: And we also have the opportunity of having a global research network. So it's not only that you can interact with your colleagues here in the U.S., but we have analysts located in Asia and Europe. And that's increasingly important because if you look at the average company in the S&P 500, over 40% of the revenues come from outside the U.S.,
2: I think that's another differentiated platform for us because unlike most of my competitors who go to Asia, for example, and travel with a sell-side team of 20 people, I go to Asia and I travel there with my colleagues from London, Tokyo, Beijing, and Singapore. And there's five of us in a meeting and my counterpart in Tokyo will know the CEO and CFO like we know the CEO and CFO here. And that relationship is just a differentiated conversation. And it's really been to our benefit in understanding the global themes, and then also then adding that in our local portfolios around the world. Just to follow on the theme of disruption, I'll take Amazon, which we mentioned before. So AWS has gone from basically zero to over a $10 billion run rate growing 40% year over year. And that's been a huge disruption for the legacy tech players. So if you look at server growth, you look at storage growth, you look at networking growth, these are all segments Aside from servers, it's always been relatively low growth, but storage and networking were mid to high single digit growth businesses until Amazon came along. And instead of a company like JP Morgan just buying 100% Cisco, we now move some of our workloads to AWS, which AWS actually buys off the shelf from Taiwan their networking switches, which is a much lower cost way to do it. And that is disrupting the type of growth that we've seen historically. And this is a disruption that I think, in terms of S-curve adoption, we're actually relatively early on. I actually just met with someone from our IT department yesterday, and we've only moved a handful of workloads over out of our 6,000 applications. And our goal is 20 to 30% over the next three to five years, and that will likely go higher over time. And so I think you're going to see the level of disruption. You've already seen it felt in storage and networking, but I think it only gets to be more of a headwind as we move out. And it's everywhere. Look
1: at media. The idea that when I was growing up, you watch TV, a show at a certain time, Monday at seven o'clock. Nobody watches TV like that anymore. It's completely on demand. The term binge watching. So you've got disruptors like Netflix and others. And this is true across every single industry. And it's our job to identify what are the long-term trends versus short-term. And then to
2: think back, what is the foundation of that? And in my mind, it's better processing power. And actually today, if you look at artificial intelligence and other things, it's being enabled by NVIDIA, which is a different way of processing. It's parallel processing versus serial. So that's one piece of it, that they have a software ecosystem that enables it. And then you just have mobility. You have better bandwidth around the world that's enabling people to do things on a mobile basis where you can order your Uber and it's there. You wouldn't think of calling a taxi now in a lot of places. And so just like in Netflix, you need bandwidth, you need a a data center, which is AWS, and it's all working together and I think over time, you're just going to have smarter and smarter software on better chips with better bandwidth. This is going to be, continue to be a virtuous cycle of innovation that I think is going to continue to disrupt all industries. And it's our job to figure out who are the winners, who are the losers, both in the foundational parts that enable it and then in how they disrupt different businesses.
0: Intel was the winner of the PC cycle. We've moved on to different paradigms, as you've described, but it's still a big benchmark name. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with that?
2: Yeah, that's a tough one because I have so much respect for Intel as a company. I think they're one of the greatest companies of all time. I mean, Moore's Law was named after Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel. And I think for so long, they've enabled so much innovation and done so many great things. However, they are still a great company, but does that mean they're going to be a great stock? And so my concern is that over 50% of the revenue is still in PCs, which I think are a market in secular decline, They've been declining about 5% a year since 2011. And I actually think here's another case with disruption where I think the decline could accelerate over time. And the reason is half the market today is commercial. Half the market is consumer for PCs. I think that five to 10 years from now, these lines are going to blur. I think someone starting at JP Morgan in five years, maybe it's longer, will show up with their own device. So we're all just going to have one or two devices There's not going to be a commercial. There's not going to be a consumer. You have one device. Everything will be partitioned by software and by applications. And so that, I think, is going to continue to put pressure on the PC market over time. And then you look at their server business, which had been the crown jewel of the company, which is another 30% or so of revenue, had been growing in the double digits, but has since slowed to single digits over the last few quarters. Part of that is the Amazon effect of instead of selling to 10 different companies for their servers— Those 10 companies put their workloads at Amazon, which is a much more efficient way to do things. And then the other pressure is that workloads are moving from serial to parallel, which is things like artificial intelligence, which is being enabled by NVIDIA. So they're being hit in two different ways. And so it's really hard to see Intel growing that much over time. And their CapEx is actually $5 billion more than depreciation. So if you look at their free cash flow multiple, it's actually about seven points higher than their PE multiple. And that's what we're really focused on is free cash flow, relative valuation on that free cash flow and the trajectory of it. And so I think I can find things like Avago, like TI, that can grow faster over time with the same or better free cash flow valuation.
0: Passive investors, of course, are buying Intel. If you were a betting person, would you bet that Intel will become a smaller percentage of the benchmark or a larger percentage?
2: It used to be over 100 basis points. It's now down closer to 80. And I think that trend continues over the next five to 10 years.
0: J.P. Morgan has a significant business in traditional style boxes, but some of our most successful strategies in terms of excess return and client interest were born out of a wave of product innovation in the mid-2000s when we introduced less constrained approaches like large-cap core plus, which is a 130 strategy that has the ability to short, and value and growth advantage, which are anchored in large-cap, but give the portfolio manager the freedom to own stocks across the cap spectrum. What's the benefit of flexibility?
1: The benefit of flexibility is maximizing the returns that we can offer to our clients. So if you look at our large cap core plus strategy, which as you just said, is run as a 130 30, which means the portfolio manager can short roughly 30% of the portfolio and then take the proceeds from those short sales and buy more of their favorite long ideas still with a beta of one. So it's not a hedge fund. It's fully exposed to the market, but it's a better way to outperform in the large cap core space, which is the most competitive market in the world. Now, why is that so? Simply put, as Rob's going out and looking for ideas to put in his portfolio, when you look at the index, the average weighting in the index is only 10 basis points. So if Rob finds a name that he really likes and the weighting is 10 basis points, he can have a 1% or 2% position in that stock. If, on the other hand, he identifies a company that he thinks is going to underperform and it's only 10 basis points, if it's a long-only strategy, the most he can do is simply not own it. If he can now take an active bet against that, you can really add a lot of extra return to your clients. We've just been talking about all this disruption. And whatever industry it is, wouldn't you rather be in a position where you can actually short the companies where you think they're poorly positioned? And we're not saying these are bad companies, by the way. It's all a relative game. And we're saying they're likely to underperform relative to some companies that we think have a better growth trajectory. And then when we look at relaxing the constraint on market cap, sometimes it's very arbitrary to tell a manager, well, you have to stick within one style box, mid-cap value or small-cap growth. Why not let your managers go across the whole growth spectrum or across the whole value spectrum? And this way, if you find a great stock that might have started out as a small-cap name and now becomes mid-cap, and ultimately, this is the ideal, becomes large-cap, you can stay in that name for a long time to the benefit of our clients.
2: Yeah, I find within that 10 basis points and below, I probably have about 10 to 15 companies under coverage in that spectrum. And inevitably, there's three to five of them that are just structurally challenged. And you know some of them are priced that way, but a lot of them aren't. And so I think having that flexibility to take the information advantage that we have and all the work we've done on all of our companies. I cover 29. And to be able to implement that in a portfolio is a huge positive. And I think really adds, it actually adds value both on the short and long side because it forces you to be disciplined across all of your coverage. And I think if you really understand what you're underweight and short, then it really helps you to better understand what you're overweight as well. It just gives you a more comprehensive, disciplined view of your sector.
0: Lee, you talked about active management hitting historic lows in terms of the percentage of managers outperforming last year, but an improvement this year. Why do you think that active management is poised to do well on a going forward basis?
1: If you look over history, you can't time the alpha, right? It tends to be somewhat cyclical. And I think there was a difficult run over the last couple of years because the market was so macro driven. That has really subsided, and now it's back to valuations. And let's face it, equity markets have been trading at fairly high levels. I think it's 26 times this year that we've hit a new all-time high on the S&P. And I think in that kind of environment, you have to be a lot more discerning on being able to pick the winners and the losers. And often we talk about active management. We're talking about the collective, right? That's the whole industry. And by definition, active managers are going to be average because that's the market, Our goal at J.P. Morgan is to be the best active manager, and that's why we invest so heavily in research and why we stick to our core beliefs. We believe stocks are worth their future cash flows. And again, if you can do a better job projecting what those cash flows and earnings are going to be, you will pick the best stocks for your clients'
0: portfolios. Choosing the right active manager is critically important. What should investors look for when they're selecting a manager?
1: I think the most important thing is whether or not the belief system of that manager matches what you're looking for in terms of a portfolio. And you want a manager that sticks to their process. In our case, we've been using the same process of discounting future cash flows for more than 30 years. We know when it works. We know when it doesn't. And we know over the long run, it has produced excellent results for our clients. That doesn't mean every quarter or every year. And that, again, to Rob's point, is why we evaluate our investors on their three, five, and 10-year performance records. And that's the way, quite frankly, I think clients should evaluate managers, too. And too often, it's become on very, very short-term time periods. I can't emphasize that enough, That the way to win with active managers is to find a team and a process you believe in and stay in it for the long run.
0: Thank you, Lee and Rob, for joining me today. Today, capital market returns expectations are lower than they have been in many years, And I think the benefits of active management and also the insights that you can see from a research team are even more important than they have been over past years, as incremental excess returns are very important in clients reaching their objectives. Thank you for joining us on Insights.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. If you have any feedback to provide, please submit feedback on our website, recorded on July 20th, 2017. The company or stock names mentioned in this podcast are not to be interpreted as a recommendation to buy or sell. The use of the above companies is in no way an endorsement from J.P. Morgan Asset Management Investment Management Services.
3: This content has been produced for information purposes only The results of such research are being made available as additional information and do not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, statements of financial market trends, or investment techniques and strategies expressed are those of J.P. Morgan Asset Management, unless otherwise stated, as of the date of production. They are considered to be reliable at that time, but no warranty as to the accuracy and reliability or completeness in respect of any error or omission is accepted. They may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. J.P. Morgan Distributional Services, Incorporated.
2: Copyright 2017 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company